Hi, I'm Rena Nainen, and this is The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from Foreign Policy. Throughout the season, we've looked at how women are pushing back against legal, political, and cultural barriers to better themselves and their communities. And we've centered our conversations on the male allies who have made it their mission to fight gender inequalities. We've heard stories from Lesotho, where a former prime minister pushed through gender quotas. It wasn't difficult for him to see that women are strong and they are people of determination. Why would you now sideline them or marginalize them in matters of state? And we've explored male-dominated industries like fishing in Kenya and mining in Uganda, where prominent male allies are helping to open doors and end exploitation. We shall ensure that women in fisheries are given first priority to have equality and promote their livelihood in fisheries. And we also visited a workshop for men in South Africa, which targets the root causes of gender-based violence. It has helped us to, if you like, rehumanize us, to see that manhood is not just about hurting, it is actually about care. One of the main reasons we wanted to do a season on male allies was because a key part of advancing gender equality is influencing men. So we wanted to figure out, how do you do that? How do you change the minds of men effectively to advance women's goals? And crucially, how do you get them to increase the number of women in power? So for this final episode, we're talking to women in power. And not just any women in power, leaders who are really advancing gender equality in their sectors. A little later on, we're going to hear from Rachel Vogelstein. She's an advisor to President Biden on gender policy. She'll talk about U.S. efforts to expand gender equality across the globe. But first, we want to look at how smart financial policy can transform the lives of women and girls. One of the best experts on this is Ratna Sahai. She's a former advisor on gender at the International Monetary Fund, or IMF. I had a chance to speak to Ratna at Foreign Policy's annual Her Power Summit, which was held in Washington, D.C. What I love about you, Ratna, is you have been in economics, finance, you really understand it, and you've always had this passion for gender, which is what you're focused on at IMF. But as we know, coming out of this pandemic, countries are so worried about so many different issues. Why should gender really matter? That question, Rena, is really a million-dollar question, uh, both figuratively and uh, (laughs) otherwise. Uh, The answer to that question is really very simple. And the answer is that the world right now is facing many, many problems. Inflation, threat of recession, the food and energy price shock. And of course, it's understandable that policymakers are focused on these topics. But you know what? We really have to change the framing and the paradigm because women are a huge part of the solution. Why? Because there are many studies that we have done at the IMF. There are writers outside the IMF, and they show something which is absolutely critical and important for everybody. And that is, if you reduce gender disparities, you close these gaps, it leads to higher economic growth, it leads to lowering inequality, and it leads to enhancing 
both economic and financial resilience. So you're saying for countries there's a real, substantive, tangible economic benefit. Are there any countries that you can point to that we might be surprised in the transformation they're making? Because so many people were pushed yeah. back in this pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, so because the gender disparities are so large, uh, and, and when, when you talk to, uh, say, policymakers, they say, well, all this is going to take time. Mm -hmm. And that is simply not true. You know why? We have a fantastic example, mm -hmm. actually, of Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia? Yeah, okay. very interesting. So they decided to empower women and get them into the workforce. And in just about five years, the female labor force participation, which was something like 25%, yeah. is now more than 35%. This was their goal for 2030. They've already met the goal. How were they able to do that in, in such a short time then? Well, first of all, a lot of women there are very highly educated. Yeah. All they needed was to be empowered to go and work. Mm -hmm. Ratna, I want to talk to you because you really understand also the financial sector, the private sector and all of this. And as Hannah was talking about, laying out why this is so important, mm -hmm. how do you convince these private companies beyond the government and, and place like the IMF, how do you convince them? What have you found in a room makes a difference to get them to open up their pocketbooks and take this as a serious issue? Thank you, Rina. I mean, let, let me just begin by saying that at the IMF, what has been really transformational is it's the first time that we have come out with a gender mainstreaming strategy. Mm -hmm. And uh, what is the big deal about that is that our vision is to embed a gender lens in all our activities. So that encompasses you know, our macro policies, our financial policies, the recommendations we give to countries. It also includes the loans that we might give. And also, we are there to provide capacity development to these countries who want to uh, adopt these policies. Do they push back? Or, you know, these countries want these loans from you, from the IMF. How are those conversations? Do you uh, find that they're, they're interested and they get it, or? So we are just beginning, but I have to tell you that I was so encouraged. We had our annual meetings, the World Bank IMF annual meetings. And there were a number of finance ministers and uh, governors of central banks who wanted to meet me, since I was the senior advisor on gender, and wanted to ask what they could do in their respective countries. And this covered... Can you name some names? Are there countries that you were surprised with that are, are I'm very curious to know? Uh, I don't think I should mention names, okay. just because I might leave out some others. Okay. But, uh, but they covered, what I can tell you is they covered a wide range from uh, advanced economies, emerging markets, as well as low-income countries. So the key point that I make to them on the question that you asked, again, this is very much based on the research I myself have done. That's the maximum uh, work I've done in the last seven years, which relates to you know, women, finance, and fintech now. Uh, and there are four or five uh, points I want to make. First, what we have found is that if you increase more underprivileged people, both men and women, into uh, the financial sector in terms of access to financial services, economic growth is higher. Mm -hmm. However, we also find that if you include more women at the margin, income inequality actually falls much more. Mm -hmm. 
Another evidence that we have seen is, and this goes back to what Hannah was mentioning about the importance of women in leadership positions, is that we find if there are more women as board members, the share of women as board members in the banking sector and also in the fintech sector, the financial performance of the banks, the fintech companies is much higher in terms of lower uh, non-performing loans in terms of higher revenue. Mm -hmm. But you know what the facts are, and this should be shocking for all of us, is that if you look around the world and you look at how many women CEOs there are on banks, uh, it's about 5%. Yeah. These are big banks, you know, cross-country studies. What is the proportion of women on the boards? Uh, not just of banks, but fintech companies, but also regulatory bodies. Another point that Hannah made is really important. Mm -hmm. And they are uh, about 20%. Wow. You know? yeah. Interesting uh, fact, they are among the highest in sub-Saharan Africa. Actually. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> Higher than the advanced economies. Well, why? Yeah, why is that? Well, that is a million dollar question <laughs> because we always talk about the social, religious, cultural norms being much worse in emerging mm -hmm. markets as well as in low-income countries. But what we have also found, there are studies that show that actually signal from the top matters, mm -hmm. policies matter much more than these social and cultural norms. That's so we should really take encouragement from that fact. And this is a message to our top leaders. You want to take action? It works. It works. It worked in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I was very surprised to hear you say that. Right. I've got two questions that I'd like, sort of a lightning round for you to answer. What gives you the most hope as we're trying to transform this space? And is there a policy or a country or something that you have seen to watch, to, to flag to people that could be transformative mm -hmm. in this space? Mm -hmm. Peggy? So what gives me really hope is that, uh, as you might know, that the IMF is uh, 190 member countries. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have to say, I was uh, a bit nervous when I uh, took the paper to the board uh, for discussion. Yeah. And we came out incredibly pleasantly, not just surprised, but yeah. also extremely happy. We got a really strong endorsement from all our member countries. So this is the that's top leadership. Uh, and it's the same in the World Bank group. It's the same, so that's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, so that's what gives me hope. The other thing that also gives me hope is related to your second question, which is, you know, there are low-hanging fruits. Why are there low-hanging fruits? Why? Because the, the gender diversity is so wide. Yeah, there's a Once lot Once you there. start closing it, yeah. it really works out. Right. I mean, I, I just want to give you a very quick example. India, the prime minister said, why are the girls not going to the villages, uh, in the villages to school? And he said, it's not because the parents don't want it, the girls don't want it. There are no bathrooms for girls. Mm. So he said, construct bathrooms all over the villages where there are no bathrooms. Big turnaround. On they started showing up. Yeah. yeah. Ratna, I want to thank you for the work you're doing and for your perspective on coming out of this post-pandemic. Okay. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You just heard from Ratna Sahai, Senior Advisor on Gender at the IMF. This conversation took place at Foreign Policy's annual Her Power Summit. The next Her Power will be on October 25th. Feel free to contact podcasts at foreignpolicy.com if you'd like more details. Coming up after the break, my conversation with Rachel Vogelstein. 
She works on gender policy for the Biden administration. We'll talk about how wealthy countries like the U.S. can use their power and influence to bring about big changes with women worldwide. Let's face it, money is the one subject we all need to deal with, but no one actually wants to talk about. The good news is there's a podcast helping you learn everything about money no one taught you. Meet Everyone's Talking Money, hosted by me, Shauna Game. Everyone's Talking Money focuses on relevant, inclusive, and forward-thinking conversations around money and just helps you get in a better relationship with your money no matter what your goals are. Do yourself a favor and subscribe to Everyone's Talking Money podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a production of Foreign Policy. I'm Rena Nainen. For this last episode of the season, we're excited to share insights from Rachel Vogelstein, a top gender policy expert at the White House. There are studies that show that closing gender gaps in the workforce would add between 12 and $28 trillion in global GDP over a decade. And expanding women's access to markets and to finance fosters entrepreneurship and innovation with estimates suggesting that gender parity and entrepreneurship could add between five and $6 trillion in net value to the global economy. And yet, despite the clear benefits of women's economic participation, too often barriers remain. We know that on average, women spend more than twice the amount of time that men do performing unpaid care work, and that the annual value of that work is at approximately 11 trillion globally. We also recognize that 2.4 billion working age women still face legal obstacles to their economic participation, and that dismantling these systemic barriers is really necessary and a precondition to unlocking economic gains. And the disproportionate effect that COVID-19 had on women's employment has had a devastating effect on women's economic participation, but also on entire families, communities, economies. You talk about reduce wage gaps. That's such a big topic and not easy to do. How do you move forward on a topic like this? Where do you see the greatest opportunity for advancement? Well, I'll give you a few examples of some of the programs that we're working on. So one of the causes of the wage gap um, is occupational segregation, and that we see that around the world, women tend to be concentrated in low-paying industries. Uh, And we're addressing that. So the U.S. Agency for International Development has had a program really starting back in 2015 called Engendering Industries, which began offering training to gender equality champions at energy companies, providing them with change management coaching to help drive progress on these issues within their companies. And Engendering Industries has already moved from the energy sector, which is historically male-dominated, to other male-dominated industries. And through the Gender Equity and Equality Action Fund, we're expanding this program and programs like it to promote gender equality in industries worldwide, everywhere from agribusiness to information technology. So that's one way to help close the wage gap for women. Another example of the work that we're doing is the U.S.-India Alliance for Women's Economic Empowerment, an initiative that connects the private sector and civil society 
in order to provide women in India with technical skills and networking opportunities to help them grow their businesses. And at the launch of the Alliance, Google India committed to mentoring 1 million Indian women entrepreneurs, and we're working with other partners to increase that number. So that's another way that we are focused on helping women capitalize on their potential and in doing so, lift their wages and close those gender gaps. How do you get more companies? I mean, Google is obviously one of the FANG major tech companies in the world. How do you get other companies and countries to be supportive of female entrepreneurship, of female economic empowerment? Well, there's another program I'll point to in answering that question, which is a program the U.S. Department of State is supporting called WeChamps, which is focused on strengthening the ecosystem that and women entrepreneurs find themselves in um, by creating regional women's chambers of commerce and business associations. And this is a project that is supporting locally designed programming by women's chambers of commerce and business associations to strengthen services for women entrepreneurs and importantly, to help them address the barriers they face. So I think it's an example of how partnering with the private sector can help women entrepreneurs have the resources and the tools, the skills, and also the networks that they need in order to succeed. One of the issues that we constantly have to deal with as women are is childcare. Uh, and I'm curious what your thoughts are, because I know it's one of your key priorities when you're looking at global women's economic security is dealing with child care and also elderly care. You know, a lot of women are sandwiched between dealing with child care and the care of their parents. How do you plan to make a difference in this area? What are the economic proposals? What are the proposals that you have in your office that you think could make a difference? Well, we are really focused on strengthening the care economy. That's been true in our work domestically and also true in our work globally. And it's a challenge faced by all of us. It was really illuminated and put into stark relief by the pandemic. Uh, and we know that investing in care infrastructure is one of the answers to the, the challenges that you outlined. And just as roads and bridges help facilitate labor force participation, so too does the infrastructure to ensure that children and elders and those who are sick are healthy and safe and cared for while family members are at work. So we know that the COVID-19 pandemic exposed the, the gaps in care infrastructure across the globe and that those gaps had disastrous effects on women's labor force participation. So to lift millions of women and families out of poverty, we need to work together to strengthen that care infrastructure. And that's part of what we're doing through the President's Global Infrastructure Initiative. It's also what we're doing here at home through the CHIPS program and, and through uh, other initiatives that have been announced on the domestic side. That includes supporting protections for the caregiving workforce, including domestic workers, and promoting reform for workers in the informal economy whose economic and caregiving needs are too often overlooked. I know you also mentioned digital inclusion. What's the strategy from the White House on dealing with digital inclusion? We're really committed to working together with partners to help close the digital gender gap. You know, globally, approximately 260 million more men than women were using the internet in 2022. And we know that this gap has increased by 20 million in the last three years. 
we simply cannot realize the full participation and potential of our economies if women are not online. We really need to accelerate our efforts in this area in partnership with the private sector to address affordability and access to mobile devices and internet services, to promote digital literacy and skills training, uh, and to address online safety and freedom from technology-facilitated gender-based violence and harassment. We've talked a lot about your strategy for women's economic security around the world the past few minutes. I'm also curious to focus a little bit broader. How does the Biden administration view key foreign policy challenges from a gender lens? I want to start maybe with the war in Ukraine. Well, we know that women and girls in Ukraine really deserves our attention. We must ensure that their voices are heard and provide support services, including to survivors of sexual and gender-based violence. Uh, so to strengthen the U.S. government's efforts to combat conflict-related sexual violence in Ukraine and in other parts of the world, in November, President Biden signed a presidential memorandum on promoting accountability for conflict-related sexual violence. This was on the occasion of the U.K. summit on preventing sexual violence. And this presidential memorandum does a few things. First, it leverages sanctions authorities, assistance restrictions, and other tools to promote accountability for perpetrators of conflict-related sexual violence. Second, it ensures that acts of conflict-related sexual violence are given equal consideration alongside other serious human rights abuses in developing designations under existing sanctions authorities. And third, the memorandum instructs the federal government to continue to build a coalition of like-minded nations and international organizations to prevent and to promote accountability for acts of conflict-related sexual violence. Rachel, a lot of people listening to this podcast work in the field of policy and want to be able to push forward the policies you've done, often in other countries. Can you talk a little bit about what you find are some of the biggest challenges in this administration with the type of work you do? And, and how do you try and overcome that? No, there's uh, a number of challenges uh, that I would point to in this effort. Um, certainly the persistence of uh, challenging and discriminatory laws. Uh, you know, legal reform takes uh, a long time, as does cultural change. And so thinking about opportunities to make change while recognizing that this is a long-term effort, uh, that's one challenge. Uh, I think there are also particular areas where we have seen uh, grave attacks. I've talked about some of them, certainly the incidents of sexual and gender-based violence and conflict. Uh, we talked about the Russia-Ukraine conflict. We've seen uh, that issue uh, come to a head in Ethiopia. Uh, and uh, we've seen attacks on women and girls who are fighting to defend their rights. I would point to uh, the situation in Iran, uh, where we have seen brutality and violence perpetrated against Iranian women and girls in the wake of protests following the tragic death of Masa Amini. But we're working with our partners to address these challenges. And so, for example, with respect to Iran, to promote human rights, we have defended women's rights in Iran at the UN Commission on the Status of Women, working with partners at the United Nations Economic and Social Council to win support for a vote to remove Iran from the Commission on the Status of Women due to the brutality and violence that we're seeing against Iranian women and girls. So we are taking 
action uh, wherever we can to address human rights violations. So while there are still a lot of work to do and many challenges, uh, this administration has really put a spotlight and squarely focus on advancing gender equity and equality here and around the world. Rachel Vogelstein, Senior Advisor to the White House Gender Policy Council in the Biden administration. Rachel, and thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. And that does it for season four. A big thanks to all the women who helped contribute to this season. Some traveled to remote areas to report stories for us. We're grateful for your efforts and for helping us elevate the voices of women working to overcome gender barriers. As this season comes to a close, we're excited to announce that we've already begun work on season five of our show. If you have any ideas for future episodes, feel free to email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. Season five will be out this fall. The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women is a production of Foreign Policy and is made possible through funding in part from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our podcast is hosted by me, Rena Ninen. Our show is produced by Rosie Julin and our senior producer, Laura Rossbrow Tellum. Rob Sachs is our managing editor and Claudia Tady is our marketing manager. Thanks again, and we'll be back in your feed very soon. Take care in the meantime.